Well, in just a moment, we're going to pick off where pick up where we left off last week in the books of Exodus. We are um, getting to Exodus chapter. Uh, we'll round out chapter six, begin chapter seven. Uh, but before we get there, I want to spend just a little bit of time um, reminding you, if you are a Christian here this morning, if you have placed your faith. Um, in Jesus, repented of your sins and, and found um, saving uh, grace in him. Uh, he is your standing. If that's happened to you, um, the moment that you placed your faith in him, at least three really big, life-changing, monumental things happened. Okay, and that's where I want to start. So if you're used to sermons kind of taking like off the ground slowly and doing a slow climb, that's not today. Buckle in because we're going hard and we're going fast. Okay, so three really big things that happened to you, Christian, the moment that you believed. Immediately, when you believed in Jesus, you received a new standing. Uh, we read in Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word justified, that's a legal term. That's a term that we find in the courtroom setting. Um, if someone has been accused of a crime and the judge or the jury finds, no, this person was innocent, they say, not guilty. And that not guilty verdict is justification, right? They have been given a clean slate. They are not guilty. That's what that word justified means. It means to be declared or counted as righteous. You, you have no guilt. And so the, the Christian message is that when guilty people like us trust in Jesus, that instant he pays for our sins and in the courtroom of God the verdict is given you are justified okay does that make sense we have a new standing before God our judge that's the first just huge thing that happens to you the moment you were believed now there's a second really big thing that happens um, Titus 3 7 says that out of our change status we receive a new identity uh, so you receive a new identity. Titus 3, 7 says that Jesus died, quote, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, do, do you hear that? Do you hear the movement in that verse? Being justified, we might become something. We might become something new, and the word he uses is heirs. And so your identity is a sinner no more. You are a child of God. You are adopted. You are beloved. And you are now, as it were, a prince or princess of the king of the universe. That is your, your identity. And it comes out of that justified standing. Now, we receive a new standing. We receive a new identity. The third big thing that happens the instant someone places their faith in Christ is you receive a new calling. And this is what I want to highlight for us this morning. Now, it only makes sense if you think about it. It only makes sense that our new standing and our new identity result in a new calling or a new purpose. If you would take a common criminal... And that common criminal used to run in the streets, you know, doing acts of violence or wickedness is adopted 
by the king of the land. How can his calling not change, right? He, he must put away the criminal activity that he's used to. I mean, the kingdom is in his care, right? He's, he has a new legacy now. The, the, the purpose and, and shape of his life has completely changed. And Christian, that's what's happened to you. The purpose of your life has completely changed. We are called, we read in the New Testament, to be holy, quote, in all of our conduct, as God is holy. That's 1 Peter 1.16. We are called to love God with all our being and to love others as we love ourselves. I mean, Jesus says that's, that's the first two commandments in his kingdom. Those are the two biggest ones, right? We're called to be ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. So that more and more people hear about this justification, this forgiveness that is available in Christ and come to know him through us. These are the kinds of things that you and I, as a follower of Jesus, are called to. That's our calling. That's our purpose. Now, here's the question I want to ask us before we jump into Exodus 6. How are you going to live out that calling. I mean, these are not biblical niceties, right? Um, Jesus, uh, Peter did not instruct the, the Jesus followers in his charge to be holy as God is holy because he thought it would look nice, you know, in a script next to a sunset over the fireplace. Uh, these aren't just like nice sayings. God actually intends for every Christ follower to be holy as God is holy. That, that's like the reality that he intends to happen. He wants you to live it out. He intends for your ransom life to be set apart for God and not for sin. He desires every person in this room to actually love him with everything we are. And, you know, as much as you may love yourself, and if you know anything about yourself, you love yourself a lot. I love myself a lot. God actually intends for us to love others to the same extent we love ourselves. He intends for the gospel of Jesus to go forth in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in our city, and to the ends of the world. And he actually intends to use you to do that. This is your calling. And I want to ask, how are you going to do that? It's a, it's a great calling. It is a very high calling. It's a, it's a privilege to have this kind of calling. And yet, I think when we get to the Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, does it not feel often that it's, it's beyond us? Like maybe it's a little out of reach, maybe a little out of touch. Okay, God, you want me to love you with all my being? Well, I can think of these ways that I love you, but I can think of these other ways that I'm not loving you so well. And so how am I supposed to actually fulfill this calling? Or I know my neighbor, Mark, needs to hear about you, but every conversation I think about just seems like a dead end. How am I actually supposed to live out that calling? How's, how's he supposed to hear about Jesus from my lips when I can't even seem to put a conversation together in my head? How are we to live out this calling? Please open your Bibles to Exodus 
chapter 6. So far in the story of Exodus, the nation of Israel has been enslaved under Egyptian oppression for nearly 400 years. Moses is one Israelite who grew up in Pharaoh's house and has been called by God to free the Israelite people from this bondage in slavery. But so far, that hasn't gone very well, has it? Like us, Moses' calling seems beyond his reach. How is Moses going to do what God has told him to do? How is he going to fulfill his calling? This text is intended to help us answer that question. Uh, the passage for this morning is a little bit longer, so we'll break it into two readings. We're going to um, start halfway through chapter 6 and go a few verses into chapter 7. And so John Haluda is going to come uh, forward first, and he'll read for us Exodus chapter 6, verses 10 to 30, the bulk of which describes the line uh, that Moses and his brother Aaron came from. Um, and so, uh, John, thank you so much for being willing to read genealogy for us this morning. Uh, we, we appreciate that. Paul will come and read the second half of our text, Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. This is going to show us how Moses actually does begin to fulfill this calling. We're going to see uh, kind of the first steps in that direction. Sarah Harmon will then come and read uh, John chapter 14, a few verses from there. And then Sharon will come and read uh, a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And both of these passages kind of take the theme of calling that we're seeing in Exodus 6 and 7 into the New Testament and further uh, emphasize the greatness of our calling in Christ and how we might fulfill that calling. So let's turn our attention now to God's word as these readers come forward. And John, would you come forward and get us started, please? Exodus six ten through 30. <clears throat> so Yahweh said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. <clears throat> but Moses said to Yahweh, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am un- of uncircumcised lips. But Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Koath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Koath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Koath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malai, and Mushai. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elizaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took his wife, Elishabah, 
the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel. She bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's house of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom Yahweh said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when Yahweh spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, Yahweh said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh king of Egypt all that I say to you. But Moses said to Yahweh, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Exodus 7, 1 through 7. And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as Yahweh commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is John 14, verses 12 to 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, if you, uh, if you still have your Bible open, if you don't still have your Bible open, would you, would you open it back up to Exodus chapter 6? Uh, because I want us to, to see in the text a really important transition that happened from last week's text to this week's text. And it's important that we, we understand this transition because it's going to kind of unlock and help us understand why is this passage here and what should we learn from it. Um, so Exodus chapter 6, last week we focused really on the first half of Exodus 6, verses 1 through 9, and I want you to just scan over those first uh, nine verses of Exodus chapter 6, and as you look over them, I want you to remember third grade English class. 
I want you to remember what you learned in third grade English class about subjects and predicates. Um, the subject of a sentence is, it's usually toward the beginning of the sentence, although not always, and it's the main person or thing that the sentence is about. The predicate describes uh, the rest of the sentence, and it describes what the subject is doing or something about the subject, but the subject's kind of the main actor of the sentence. And what I want you to do is I want you to look at verses 1 through 9 of chapter 6 and tell me who is the subject of most of those sentences. Who's the main actor or who are, are those sentences mostly about? You can shout it out. Yeah, God, right? He's the subject. He, he's saying uh, things like, God spoke to Moses and I am Yahweh. I also established my covenant. I heard the groaning of the people of Israel. I, I, I. It goes on throughout that whole passage. So that section, those first nine verses, they are all about God. They're all about Yahweh. Now, look where we picked up today, starting in verse 10, and more so in verse 14 and following. And I want to ask you about this section. Who are Who is the subject, not of all, but of most of these sentences in, in verse 10 or 14 and following? I think I heard it. Moses, yeah. Yeah, do you see that shift in the subjects? And so, for instance, verse 12 says, but Moses said to the Lord, the people of Israel have not listened to me. I am of uncircumcised lips. And then we have this long genealogy about Moses and Aaron's ancestors and their sons. And then in, in verse 26, it picks up again, these are the Moses and Aaron to whom the Lord said. And it was they who spoke to Pharaoh. So this section is all about Aaron and Moses. Do you see that shift in the text? I'm, I'm, I, I want to be careful that we understand I'm not making that up, right? We're not, we're not doing biblical gymnastics here. That's very clear transition in the text, right? Now, that shift is key to understanding why our text is in the Bible. Uh, ever since Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, so if you can kind of go in your time machine back maybe three or four weeks, chapter 3 is about the burning bush when Moses meets God at the burning bush. And ever since that point, God has said that he was going to free his people. Three chapters later, it hasn't really started, Right? Three chapters later, and we're still waiting for that to begin. I was listening to one commentator about those three chapters, like three through six-ish, and he said, you know, he, he reads that, and he kind of feels like a kid arriving at Disneyland. And, and this kid wants to go to Disneyland, and he wants to ride Space Mountain. That's like the primo ride, right, the, the big roller coaster. And, and he's endured the plane ride, and he's checked in with his hotel, into the hotel with his parents. And he's, he, they got to the park, and he took off like a shot, and he's running through the park. And he finally rounds the corner to the main event, the reason why he's there. And to his horror, he sees a two-hour line. That's kind of what these chapters feel like. Three chapters, and we haven't seen one plague. We haven't really seen a miracle yet. You know, the freedom that, that this enslaved nation is waiting for, I mean, it hasn't even begun. Why are we dealing with genealogies? Why are we in a three-chapter-long line talking about uncircumcised lips? I don't even know what that is. 
Like, what's going on? Where's the main event? Let's get to it. Do you kind of feel that in the text? Yeah. The main event does come. Lord willing, it starts next week. God is using these chapters to clarify some very important things. Because when that main event comes, again, Lord willing, next week, when that main event comes, we have to understand it rightly. Because the main event of Exodus is meant to speak about the main event in our lives. And so in our text this morning, what we find is God is clarifying the kind of man, or men, because it's Aaron and Moses, or women, if, you know, the kind of man, let's use a big definition, that he uses. Who is the person, the man or woman, that God will use for his purposes? Because if we don't understand the man God uses, we will completely misunderstand why the plagues come, how freedom's achieved, and why this exodus is happening at all. We're still, we'll bring all those misunderstandings of the exodus in, into our life as we think about our relationship to God and the calling upon our lives. We'll never really be part of what God has truly commissioned us to do. And so this is very important that we understand why this text is here, what it's saying, so that we interpret next week and the following weeks rightly, okay? The simple statement, the man God uses, will form kind of the two parts, the two points that I think we should take from this text. So first we're going to look at who's the man or who are the men, and then we're going to see, well, how does God use them or why does God use them, okay? So two, two really simple points. Let's begin with the man. We're told multiple things about Moses and Aaron in this passage. The most space is devoted to that genealogy in verses 14 through 25. And this genealogy begins in a very natural place. It begins um, with the tribes of Israel. It starts with Reuben, who was Jacob's firstborn. And then it moves on to Simeon, the secondborn. And it moves on to Levi, the thirdborn. And it focuses really on Levi's line down to Moses and Aaron. And then a really weird thing happens. It just stops. There's no mention of the other nine tribes. I mean, there were nine other brothers, nine other tribes of Israel, and it doesn't even mention them. And so um, it's clear, I think, by, by that abrupt stop, that the real focal point, the real purpose for that genealogy is to explain where Moses and Aaron came from. It tells us of their line. It even goes past them a little bit to tell of some of their sons. But Aaron and Moses are the real focus of the genealogy. Now, if you read people who study biblical genealogies, they'll notice some interesting uh, details about this one. Uh, Central to this genealogy is that Aaron and Moses came from, as we said, the tribe of Levi. Now, Levi is the line where the Old Testament priests will come from. That'll happen in some, mostly in numbers. Uh, So that's like two books away. Um, Some commentators note that both Levi and Amram were specifically mentioned to live 137 years. So maybe there's some like connection between those two men. Um, others note that Aaron's wife, 
um, came from a son of the tribe of Judah. Now, Judah has significance because Judah is kind of the kingly tribe. That's where the, all the kings of Israel will come from. And so maybe there's this merging of the, the priestly line and the kingly line in Aaron. Um, all fascinating, interesting ideas, but kind of missing the main mark, right? If we're just asking, what's the main purpose for this genealogy being here? Because if you, if you start reading your Bible at page one, and you read page two, and page three, and page four, down to Exodus chapter six, the only thing you'll hear about Levi is that he was one of the sons of Jacob. Like there's no hint at priesthood yet. That hasn't happened. Uh, there's one small, like, prophetic section that mentions Judah and kings coming from him, but none of that's materialized. It's, it's not even really on the radar yet. The Israelites' kings won't come for several generations. So why is this genealogy here? What's it trying to say to us? Well, I, I'd suggest that the main point of this genealogy seems to say that Moses and Aaron were quite average people. They were common, everyday Israelites. They came from normal families. Nothing really in their lineage that we read there sets them apart from any other Israelite. They weren't uh, Israelite celebrities. They didn't come from nobility or royalty. They weren't particularly powerful or strong or wise. They were just very ordinary now, if we look at the context of the genealogy, if we look for the verses around it, if that feels like a stretch and you're thinking, Nate, I'm not, I'm not really sold on that idea. If we look at the context around the genealogy, we'll hear two other voices that essentially tell us the same message. Uh, the first voice is that of the Israelites. Uh, part of Moses' objection, look at verse 12, is that, quote, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? Now, that's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Pharaoh, in, in Moses' mind, is greater than Israel, right? And Moses is essentially saying, look, God, my own people don't think there's anything special about me. My own people don't think I'm someone worth listening to. How can I go before Pharaoh? He's surely not going to listen to me. And so we hear the voice of the Israelites saying, this Moses and Aaron... They're just common people. Like, what, what claim do they have? What authority do they have? Do you see that? The second voice is that of Moses himself. And because twice, like, like bookends around this genealogy, we, we hear it once in verse 12, and then we see it again in verse 30. Moses says this strange phrase. He says, I am of uncircumcised lips. Very strange phrase. Um, we have been introduced so far in the biblical story to circumcision. Um, it has nothing to do with lips. Like That's just a strange combination to put together. So what does Moses mean by this phrase, I am of uncircumcised lips? Well, circumcision is handed down by God in Genesis 17 to Abraham. And it was a physical symbol of the close personal covenant relationship that God's people had with him, right? So um, I wear a, a wedding ring as a physical symbol that I belong to Sarah. Circumcision was a much 
greater, deeper physical reminder that this people belong to God. Okay, that's the role of circumcision. That's why God gave the practice to Abraham and his descendants after him. Moses' response in saying, I am a man of uncircumcised lips, comes when God tells him to go and tell Pharaoh. Now, what part of Moses' body is he going to use to tell Pharaoh to let the people go? The lips, right? So God says, hey, go tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And Moses' response is, I am of uncircumcised lips. Meaning, my message is not, like, like my ability to speak with my lips is not particularly noteworthy. Holiness is, is it means separate. It means a, a cut above, right? And so someone with holy lips would have a kind of authority or, or one of these people that, that speaks and just everyone listens because there's something about this person that's special or remarkable. And what Moses is saying is that's not me. I am from uncircumcised lips. When people hear me speak, God, it might as well be blah, 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 blah. There's nothing special about the words coming from my mouth. That's all anyone hears from me. Just common words. Common, ordinary words. And so I think this is a big feature of this text. Both the Israelites, Moses himself, the genealogy, reinforce this idea that Moses and Aaron are average, common Israelites. They don't come from noble families. Even their own people don't regard them as special in any way. And they aren't particularly holy. Now for us, and and probably for most of Israel's history, we who know the end of the story, we who know how Exodus is going to turn out, that's almost an unbelievable thing to say, right? Right? Like, we, we know that they're going to go into Pharaoh and they're going to call down these plagues and God is going to work mightily through them. But notice how verses 26 and 27 really push us on this idea. Look at verses 26 and 27. It says, These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt, by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and Aaron. So three times, this text is talking to us, saying, "This is the, these are the guys. As if we would say, no, these can't be the guy. Wait, these common, like, everyday people, these are the men who brought Israel out from Egypt? And the text is saying, yeah. These are the guys. It's them. Believe it. They, they are not super special. These guys are just common Israelites. This is why this text is here. It's cementing the commonness of Moses and Aaron into our minds before we get to the main event of the plagues and the miracles and the victory of freedom in the following chapters. Because if we enter that narrative, 
thinking that Moses and Aaron were these special, gifted, miracle-working men, we will misinterpret the whole thing. The main point of Exodus and the main connection it makes to your life and my life today hinges on seeing Moses and Aaron as these unimpressive common men. Now, that's the first point that, that we're to see from this text. Okay, we, we got it. I feel like I've said it enough, so I'm going to trust that we have it. Okay, on to point two. These are indeed the men God uses. This is the, the second point. God is not put off in the least that Moses and Aaron don't come from a special family. He is not hesitant for a second because they seem ungifted. He is not bashful because they are not particularly holy. God is on a mission to set his people free, and he is determined to use Moses and Aaron to do it. Look at chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. We should hear that, and part of us should think, didn't we try this before? <laughs> we have to remember, Moses and Aaron already went to Pharaoh. They already told him to let the people go. And it didn't really work. In fact, it made things worse. Yet here in verse 2 of chapter 7, God says again, you, you Moses and Aaron, you Seemingly common, average Israelites, I'm choosing you and you go and speak to Pharaoh. So Moses' calling heading into chapter 7, his calling has not changed. This is the exact same instruction. It's the same thing he did before. And this looks, from the outside looking in, incredibly foolish, does it not? Can you imagine if you were one of those Israelites? Now, remember what happened before. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. They said, hey, Pharaoh, God says, let the people go. And Pharaoh says, mm, no, I don't think so. Um, I'm actually going to make their labor worse. And so can you imagine being another one of these Israelites, seeing Moses and Aaron on their way again to Pharaoh, and maybe you ask them, hey, Moses, what's the plan this time? Like, what are we going to do? And Moses says, oh, I'm going to go tell him, you know, let the people go. And... You know, I'm like, my family can't take it, Moses. I mean, this is foolish. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, like, to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results is the definition of insanity. Like, this is crazy, Moses. Don't do it. It seems utterly foolish. Put a pin in that because we're going to come back to it. Often what the Lord asks us to do looks foolish. It looks foolish. While Moses' calling has not changed, notice from verses 1 and 2 that his status and his identity have. And God says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. In other words, 
Moses' lips, they're circumcised now big time. Uh, the words that he speaks, they're not common everyday Moses words anymore. They're the very words of God. And as Moses performs these miracles, the point to Pharaoh and the point to Egypt is plain. This isn't you know, little old Moses and Aaron doing these things. This is God. Okay? So, so the very identity and status of Moses has changed a lot since we did this before. Now, we, we might think, okay, great. This is going to go smooth from here on out. I mean, like buttery smooth. This is going to go so well because, because Moses is like God and, and whatever God does happens, right? And so this should just be great right off into the sunset. Well, not so fast. In verse 3, God tells Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh will not let the people go. I wish we had more time to talk about what it means that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to try to give a a really brief run-through of it and help us understand what's going on here so we don't misunderstand it. In hardening Pharaoh's heart, what God is doing is he's, he's actively strengthening Pharaoh's natural resolve. Pharaoh does not want to acknowledge God's authority or power. He does not want to. We know that because we read in chapter 5, verse 2, when, when Moses tried this the first time, Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I would submit to you that that is like some street bum telling Mike Tyson he can't box. Okay? He is challenging God's authority. He is challenging God's power. And so starting next week, God says, okay, we're climbing in the ring. He's going to climb in the ring with Pharaoh. And in hardening Pharaoh's heart, it's like, it's like Mike Tyson giving that street bum a baseball bat and saying, come on, come at me. Even when Pharaoh is equipped to do his worst, he is no match for God. God's resolve and his power to free his people is far, far greater than Pharaoh's resolve and power to enslave them, even when God strengthens Pharaoh's resolve and power. God will, quote, lay his hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Verse 4. The result of of this showdown that we're about to see over the next few weeks is that not only Pharaoh, but all of Egypt, verse 5, will know that Yahweh is God. This is the purpose that God is using Moses and Aaron for. Okay, now now put those, those two ideas together. Because the only role, really, that this chapter speaks that Moses and Aaron are given comes in verse 6. It says, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as Yahweh commanded them. And so God uses Moses and Aaron not despite their commonness, but because of it. 
So, so it's, it's not as if God is just only climbing in the ring with Pharaoh saying, hey, Pharaoh, here, take this baseball bat. God's also tying one of his hands behind his back because he's using Moses and Aaron. And there's nothing particularly special about Moses and Aaron, right? And yet, who comes out of the ring victorious? God. And he doesn't even break a sweat. This is the story of Exodus. This is, this is why we're not to the main event yet. God wants to clarify this point. He wants us to see the commonness of Moses and Aaron, and he wants us to see the very, very important role that plays in how he uses them to achieve their calling. Okay, so we might be thinking, well, what about my calling? What, what does this have to say to me. Well, I would just ask you, from what you know of the New Testament, from what you know of your of what Christ Jesus calls us to, what is something that, that you know God wants you to do, but does at the same time feel beyond your reach? Perhaps there's a, a specific command or a specific area of life that you know that God wants you to be obedient to, and yet the struggle is very real. You just can't seem to either put away that sin, or you just can't seem to live in obedience the way you know God wants you to. Or perhaps you can think of people in your life that you know, I mean, you, you know that God wants you to love them. If someone came up to you, if a brother or sister came up to you after the service today and said, hey, do you think God wants you to love so-and-so? You'd say, well, yes, of course he does. And yet when you're with that person, love doesn't come very fast. And it's a struggle. And there's frustration or anger or bitterness or fill in the blank. Or perhaps there are unbelievers that you know, that you know that God wants you to share the gospel with them. And yet you just don't see a way. Think, if I say this, they say this. If I say this, they turn the subject to something else. If I say this, just don't, don't see a way through this, God. Maybe in some of these areas or, or whatever you're, you're thinking of, maybe you've even tried to be faithful. Maybe it didn't go so well. Maybe things got worse. It's easy in those moments to think that maybe it's, it's just better not to try. Like, let's just go through life we can. We'll do some of what God commands us to do, but doing all that he commands us to do, I mean, can we really try to do that? Is that even worth chasing after? Well, I think we can probably all identify with most of these experiences. I can identify with all of them. I've thought all of those things at one point in my life. You uh, probably have too. There's times when we, when we look at a, you know, maybe it's, it's in the morning when we're reading scripture and we're thinking about our day and um, we come across a verse and we just think like, there's no way that's going to happen in my life today. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to close the book, kind of put it aside. You ever do that? I, I do that. There will be so many times that we think that something's either impossible or seems foolish or even crazy. And this passage, Exodus 6, 
and 7 is pushing us. It's urging us. It's cheering us on to believe. Believe that God does what he promises. Believe that you really have received that new standing. That God is not holding your sins against you. That God sees you as innocent because of what Christ has done. That your sins are covered. That your record of guilt has been put away by God the judge. Believe that you really do have a new identity. You're not just, you know, crummy old Nate anymore. You're a son of the king of the universe. The the future of the universe is partially in your hands because you're going to one day rule and reign with Jesus Christ. I mean, that's that's what the Bible tells us. It tells us these kinds of crazy things. Do you believe them? Do I? Believe that we are fully accepted, fully loved by this God. Believe that with that status and that identity comes a new calling that God wants to empower you to live out day by day. This isn't something to hang up over the fireplace. This is God's design and intention for your life. And he's already saved you. He knows you can't do it in your own strength. He knows you and I are just as common as Moses and Aaron. That's the point. Because when God uses average people like us for the kingdom of God to go forward and to to display holiness and the power of his grace, when he does that with common, ordinary people, who gets the glory? God does. You think he cares about that? Oh, yeah, he does. And so he is so eager to use you no matter how small or unqualified you feel, how many times you think you've messed it up in the past, does not deter him one bit. Moses has messed up multiple times already, right? Did not deter God from using him to set the people free. In other words, the story of Exodus is the same story that through Jesus Christ is now over your life. God displays his strength, his wisdom, his power, his love by using people that those words don't describe at all (laughs) to achieve his purposes, to do seemingly impossible acts of mercy and redemption. He doesn't always do it right away. I mean, Moses is going to do just as the Lord commanded him 10 times. There's going to be 10 plagues, right? Before Pharaoh lets the people go. But Moses kept going, which means that he kept believing, which means that we, as long as we keep believing, should keep obeying all that the Lord commands us to do. And he saw God work a miraculous salvation that we are still talking about today. There's one last exclamation point from this text that I want to put before us before we turn to the Lord in prayer. And that's in verse 7. We haven't talked about verse 7 yet. 
You might think after we heard the genealogy, I think there were three different people that it notes how old they were when they died. And it was like 137 years, 120 years. I think it notes that because those were the exceptions. Like those are the remarkable cases. I don't think people in this day, certainly an enslaved nation, would live longer than we live today, right? Yet look at verse 7. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. If you're here this morning and you're a 80-something or a 70-something, or if you're younger but you just have the sense that kind of your best years were behind you, I want you to hear verse 7. Because Moses and Aaron were in one sense over the hill, and in the other sense, God was just getting them started. They were beginning at 80 and 83. That means that as we age and as we go through life and as we see our strength depleted and as we come up against health crises and other crises, that doesn't mean that, like our culture suggests, that our life kind of tapers down at the end. It's not so. You're going to see the king. When you die, when your earthly life expires, you are going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ and God the Father. That is your destination. There's no winding down before that. God escalates our life toward that great end. If, if my 20s and 30s are the best I've got, that is not that encouraging. But if God uses people, even common, average people in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s until they see the king. Oh man, what reason do we have to hope in this God? So if you're here and the world is telling you your life is pretty much done, just coast, take a lesson from Aaron and Moses. This is the main event, probably of like the Old Testament, and they started when they were 80. What a remarkable salvation Jesus has accomplished, amen? He can use average, everyday, no-name people to change the world. Jesus has bought us such treasures of mercy and grace in his death and resurrection That if you can believe it, and if you do all that the Lord commands you, brothers and sisters, you cannot be stopped. That is not an exaggeration. So dream big. Believe and obey big time because this is your calling. And I think that's what we're supposed to learn from Exodus chapter 6 and 7. Praise God. Let's turn to him now in prayer as we think about ways to respond either in confession or intercession, asking him to do specific things. Oh, there's so many things we could ask him to do. I'll begin and then the floor is yours, church.